when I was a kid, uh, I was really close to my mom. My mom raised me. My dad was nowhere in the picture. Um, so my mom raised me. Her and my grandmother raised me. So I was very close to my mom. My mom was very protective. Um, we can all look back at our parents and say what they weren't. And then we get, but if we're honest, we also have to say what they were. My mom was not the most nurturing person. Uh, there wasn't many times that I put my head on her shoulder or we hugged or things like that, but she was very protective. She was very providing. My mom spoiled me. I was the only kid. I was spoiled rotten. <clears throat> I remember the first time she signed me up for bitty basketball. I don't remember what, what age I was. Somewhere between six and eight maybe. She signed me up for, for bitty basketball at the rec center, and I got dropped off at the rec, at the rec center to go try out for bitty basketball, and she left me there. Like, she didn't go with me. And I remember being so anxious, so full of, like, discomfort and, and anxiety and stress, and I was just, I was, I was like, my, my strength, my protection, my provider was not with me, and I went into that, and can I just be honest with you today? I cried. Big man cry. I wasn't big in those days, but I cried because I'd never been away from my mom like that. And, and today I realize what I was struggling with. I was struggling with some separation anxiety. I got really used to being in my mom's presence. I got really used to being and, and, and learning how to live under the shelter of my mom's protection and with the, with the confidence of her provision. Is this making sense? So like, like mom was good at protecting and providing, really, really good. And that was how she displayed love to me. So I got really good at living in that. And when I was forced away from that, we had what I call separation anxiety. Now what's funny is my mom had the same thing. When I went off to college, my mom's whole world changed. She would stay up literally to 10 o'clock at night washing her car, just trying to stay busy to not think about separation anxiety. Today I want to talk to you about separation anxiety, and I want to use Moses to do so, and I want to show you how he struggled with separation anxiety, but I want, I, I want to kind of just set your mind um, up before I get into the message, because this may not be exactly what you're thinking. Some of you are like, separation? I don't struggle with separation. Just listen to the message. It may not go like you think it's going to go already. <clears throat> so Moses was born a Hebrew. He, was, he belonged to the nation of Israel. His, the nation of Israel was in Egypt at the moment. Moses was born there. Pharaoh gave an order to kill the babies. Moses' mom took Moses, put him in a basket, and sent him down the river. How many of you are familiar with the story? Moses ends up at an Egyptian's house, and then he gets brought into this Egyptian home, and he gets raised as an Egyptian. But he's still Hebrew. He still belongs to the nation of Israel, but he's being raised as an Egyptian. Moses grows up in that environment. He grows up in that context. He grows up with the comforts and conveniences of being an Egyptian. He grows, up, he grows up in a slave master's home, even though his nationality, even though his, his family roots were that he was to be a slave. So he was a slave being raised in a slave master's home. 
You following? And so one day after Moses gets older, he gets into an argument with a guy, pushes him off something, and, and the guy dies, and then Moses flees Egypt, and then Moses finds a new family, and he becomes a shepherd. And life begins to really turn around for Moses. Uh, he'd become successful. He found a new family to belong to. He found a new tribe. And he settled into that tribe, and there he started to prosper. His sheep started to multiply. His, his wealth started to multiply. He got comfortable in the environment that he was in. What's funny to me is that we can bounce from one environment to another, to another, to another. And, and what we don't always realize is that the transition from one environment to another can actually be a good thing. All transition is not a bad thing <laughs> for all my people who don't like change. <laughs> and so life really turned around for Moses until the day he ran into the burning bush. <laughs> Moses runs into this bush that's burning and it's not being consumed. It's in the middle of the wilderness. And then God speaks to him from the bush and, and, and all these crazy things happen. And so that's just kind of setting up the story of where I want to be today. I, wanna, I want you to go with me to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to blitz through Exodus today. We will land. Watch this now. You might want to set your clocks. We're going we're gonna to start in chapter 3, but we're going to finish in 33. It's raining. What y'all going to do? You just soon consume as much word as you can today. Come on, somebody. The Bengals are going to win. It's going to be okay. Come on. Before we get into the scriptures, I want to teach you a word real quick. You, you, you should be familiar with this word. It should be something that you understand, but I got to say it again. I want to teach you about the word sanctify. And, and, and it'll start to make sense once I get through the message. Sanctify or to be sanctified, like when you're born again, the Bible says that you become sanctified, that God starts this sanctification process in you. To be sanctified means to be set apart for God's special purpose. You gotta get this. When you were born again, you didn't just get your name written in the book of life. You got set apart for God's special purpose, for his special purpose, not your special purpose. You were set apart. That's why you went from spiritual death into spiritual life. Jesus brought you alive. I'm going to say it as bluntly as I can. He brought you to life so that he could use you for his purpose. Don't take that the wrong way because it's good to be used by God. <laughs> yeah. Some of y'all are in that process right now. Um, so to be sanctified is to be set apart for God's special purpose. Watch this. It's the process of becoming more like Christ. You got to get this. This is what's going on in your life. Sometimes you wonder why bad things or hard things or struggles happen to you. Could you, if, if you understood what sanctified means, you would start to understand that these, these hard struggles, these, these difficult things, this stuff that keeps happening to me, it's not to kill me. It's not because God's mad at me. It's because God's using it to sanctify me, to make me more like Christ. Like left to myself, I will never become like Christ. He inspired men 
by the Holy Ghost to write a book of instruction for us so that as we study this book, like we consume coffee, I had that thought this morning. If we love the Bible as much as we love coffee, if we were as consistent with the Bible as we are with coffee, my God, the devil would be staying on the run. How many mornings you miss without coffee? How many mornings you miss without the word? Dun, dun, dun. It's a sanctifying process that God started in our life. He said the old is gone and the new has begun. So watch this. You should be becoming, I'm trying to use proper English. You should become more like Christ every day. Like the thing you need to pay attention to is not others. You need to pay attention to Christ and yourself. Am I becoming more like Christ today than I was yesterday? That's the measurement. That's the goal. That's what we're going after. If I'm going to compare myself, I'm not going to compare myself to Cole. I'll never measure up. I'm going to compare myself to Christ, right? And I want to become like Christ, not just better than Cole. I want to become like Christ, That's the sanctification process where God takes you on a journey and life beats the hell out of you so that you can become more like Christ. Yay! (laughs) Come on! Woo! I'm getting sanctified. (laughs) Next time you have a bad day, look in the mirror and go, (laughs) this is good. It's really good. It's good for me. Okay, so I taught you a word, (laughs) sanctified. Just hang on to that for a minute. Exodus chapter three, I'm gonna read 10 verses to you real quick. I I want you to just get the context of the story. Um, It says, one day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of the bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it did not burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go and see it. That just looks like a cartoon to me. Come on, somebody. (laughs) I lost my spot being funny. Good, you're paying attention. When... It's on the screen, though. When, when the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Don't come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Pay attention to that real quick. God just introduced himself to Moses. God just introduced himself to Moses. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Moses responded by falling on his face and covering his face, by falling and covering his face. He knew about God, but he was just introduced to God. 
Oh my goodness, there's a big difference between knowing about God and being introduced to God. Verse seven, then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. Remember, he just introduced himself to Moses. Then he starts talking about his people. I have, seen, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because, they're, because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. The land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, pesticides, chemicals, and all this other places live. <laughs> Look, the cry of my people, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. There's a whole lot of dynamic things that are happening in the first 10 verses. God introduces himself to Moses. Moses responds in a proper manner. And then God immediately starts to talk about Moses, about his people, about God's people. Moses didn't even really belong to those people anymore. Moses was raised Egyptian and then fled, and now he's living in Midian. God begins to speak to Moses immediately about others. And God tells Moses, the burden of his heart. The next time the enemy tells you that God doesn't speak to you, tell him he's a liar. Because God just met Moses and he began to talk to him about the burden on his heart. God got vulnerable. God got open and transparent. God got real with Moses in the first couple of minutes. So the next time the devil tells you you can't hear from God, you need to put your foot down and tell him to shut up. Because that's the same God that we serve today. He still speaks today. He still shares the burdens of his heart today. Oh, gosh. He still shares it today. I'm sending God in 10 verses. God goes, all right, you need to go. <laughs> you, my friend, are going to rescue my people. There's a whole lot that happens in that verse, right? I mean, the enemy would lie to you and tell you that you got to be, uh, you got to have a couple plaques on the wall, be through a couple courses, and do all these different things for God to use you. Well, this would prove that to be a lie. Because Moses just met God, and God just introduced himself to Moses, and God's already got a purpose for Moses' life. If that doesn't prove that God knit you together in your mother's womb and he has a purpose for your life, then I don't know what else will. Like God formed you in your mama's womb because he has a purpose for you somewhere down the road. And if you'll just stay the course with him, you'll fulfill the purpose he has for you. Good so far? So God knows how to find and God knows how to call a man. You need to pay attention to this. Who found who? God knew where Moses was. Moses didn't know where God was. 
So God got in the front of Moses and made Moses run into him and introduced himself to him in a very cool way. I ain't going to lie to you. It'd be really cool to see a bush that doesn't burn up. I'm just, I'm just being honest. I think there's going to be some in heaven, like you'll start a bonfire in your backyard, and like it won't ever go out. You'll only have to start it one time. No? Maybe? Okay. So God knows how to find a man, and God knows how to call a man. So relax a little bit, but respond. Relax, but respond. That was better than you responded. He created Moses with a purpose. And he tells Moses his burden. Watch this. Your purpose is designed according to God's burden. Your purpose is is designed to satisfy, to remedy, to fix, to, to restructure God's burden. You see, there's a major problem in in the work field today. The the workforce has bought into the lie that, well, I need to do what what, what I'm passionate about. I need to do what what makes me happy. I need to go out and work with with what what fulfills me. That's That's a good goal. But if you're broke, you just need a job. Come on, somebody. Like, forget your passion. Just go get the job. Go get the job, pay the bills, feed the family. Worry about your passion later, amen? Because God's purpose for you is designed according to his burden, not your feelings. So immediately God starts to talk about to Moses about others. That is a very rich tip right there. God sent his son to die on the cross for every one of us. The minute you accept Christ. And what he did on the cross, you're born again. You've been adopted into God's family. You and God now have no more ought between you. You went from an enemy to a friend. God's celebrating that. And he's going to walk with you the whole way. But listen to me. Immediately, he wants you to turn around and start to focus on others. Like he's going, I'm going to work on you. I need you to go get some others. Let me tell you something. Your church attendance is important. But who you preach the gospel to and who you share Christ with is eternal. Life and death is in the balance. One day, your life is going to have to move from you to others. Some of you need to move from you to others so that you can get out the way so God can touch you, so God can heal you, so God can deliver you. Maybe you need to get so busy reaching others that in the process you get healed and you don't even recognize it. I'm talking about going to Walmart with some intentions, not just to survive. (laughs) I go to Walmart because I have to. Because my wife asked me to, and, and I love her, and I go, but, but you're going to have to go to Walmart with some intentions. Like I'm going to find somebody and tell them, tell them something that gives them life. If you're not planning to do that, you're probably not going to do that on accident. Man, I was at Walmart the other day, and all of a sudden the gospel just popped out of my mouth. You 
You're going to have to plan it. You're going to have to be intentional. You're going to have to ask God to help you get past your feelings. Come on, somebody. Help me get past my nervousness. Moses had a stuttering problem, and God sent him to rescue a nation. So what's your excuse? God said this to Moses, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. You want to know what God's saying to us today? I see the oppression of my people in Eunice and the surrounding areas. Who's going to do something about it? Who's going to go and give them life? Who's going to go and set them free? Who's going to tell them about Jesus? Who's going to step out of your own situation, of your own fears, and tell somebody else about Jesus? Who's going to do it? Because I see, that's what the Lord's saying today, I see the oppression of my people in Eunice, Lotel, Perron, Villeplat. You know what I'm talking about. I don't have to name them all. Now go, I'm sending you out. God's word to Moses is the same word to us today. It's the same thing Jesus did with the 12 disciples. What did he do? Sent them out two by two. You know, Moses didn't go on by himself. Moses went with Aaron. Jesus sent him out two by two to do what? Preach the gospel, heal the sick, and cast out demons. That's cool, Pastor, but like, I don't like them demons. Like, they scare me. Okay. Get to know Jesus better. Get to know Jesus better. Stand against the ones that are right in front of you and get good at getting them out the way. Amen? So Moses starts to protest. Verse 11, but Moses protested to God. And he's still alive. Not today, but like he was still alive. You see, you're going to have to understand that this relationship with God is a real relationship. It's not a pretend one. It's not one that you have to practice for. But Moses protested to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Like, bro, you was living in his house. Like you was, you was in the hood with him. Like, like what you, you afraid of Pharaoh? Like, don't you still have a key to the house? Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? I find this hilariously interesting. Moses says, who am I? And then in a couple more verses, he says, well, who should I tell, say that sent me? And God goes, I am. Moses is wrestling with who am I, and God's saying, I am. That's hilariously interesting. Mm -hmm. Who am I? Moses is having an identity issue. He doesn't know who he is. Yet, but this sanctification process teaches you a whole lot if you just stay in the process. Nor does Moses know who God is yet. He knows that God is to be feared, but he doesn't know God personally. And this is the beginning of God and Moses' relationship, which I think is one of the most beautiful relationships in the Bible. 
I've learned so much from God and Moses' relationship. I learned how to pray from reading and studying their relationship. I learned how to be real with God by paying attention to how Moses and God were real with one another. Do you realize there was days Moses wanted to take out the whole nation of Israel and God said no? And then the next day God said, okay, I'm done with them. I'm taking them out. And Moses said, please no. That's a very dynamic relationship. (laughs) But we find Moses in chapter 3 and he doesn't even know who he is. He's questioning it himself. Who am I? How many of us are here today and we're questioning ourselves? Who am I? I came from such a place. I came from across the tracks. Do you know who my people are? Have you heard my last name? (laughs) Now, I'm sure Moses had some real issues going back to Egypt. I'm sure he was worried about what people would say. I'm sure he was even worried about what people would do to him. Remember, he killed a man and fled. He didn't leave on good terms. (laughs) You see, he left Egypt as an Egyptian, but this time he would be returning as a Hebrew. He left a slave master, but this time he's returning as a slave deliverer. He just don't know that's what he is yet. So I'm sure it was hard for him to process and to get past. I'm sure his struggle was real just like our struggle is real. Amen? I'm sure he had some thoughts and some anxieties. I bet he had separation anxiety from leaving the comfortable place that he he just grew up in, the place that he just spent a whole bunch of years in. I bet he had a hard time leaving his family. He's married now and has kids. He's he's running his father-in-law's business like things are well. I'm sure he had some separation anxiety for leaving all those things that he could trust in, that he could rest at night about because he had this, because he had more than 10 sheep. He could sleep all night. You follow what I'm saying? Like I'm sure he had some separation anxiety from leaving where he was, but I'm sure he had some anxiety about where he was going next. And that is a real thing to all of us. Amen? There is an anxiety when the Holy Ghost lays upon your heart to go share the gospel with somebody, to go and act in love towards somebody, to go do something that may be taken the wrong way, to maybe stand against some darkness that's around you. I'm sure there's anxiety to that. I feel anxiety sometimes. God has me in a season right now where I'm a little bit anxious about some of the things that he's calling me to do. So the anxiety of it all is real. But it's an emotion. It's an emotion that you have authority over. It's an emotion that you don't have to succumb to. It has to bow at the name of Jesus. It has to bow at the name of Jesus. It has to bow at the name of Jesus. You don't have to live with anxiety. I'm sure he had a lot of things running through his head in this moment. And so he protested, just like many of us protest. Show of hands, who's a protester? Come on, somebody. We got some protest. All right, the rest of y'all ain't being honest because y'all are some protesters. You, I'll rewind the tape for you if God would let me. We rewind the tape on the last thing he told you to do, and you didn't want to go do it. 
protest. Lead a life group. Protest. Give 20 bucks to that woman in the grocery line. Protest. You might not say nothing, but you just act like you didn't hear nothing. Watch it now. Yeah, that wasn't God. That was the devil. Get behind me, Satan. God ain't going to take my last 20. So I'm sure it was hard for Moses. I'm sure it was difficult. But there's one thing about Moses I really like. Moses didn't have an issue protesting. I don't have an issue with people protesting. As a pastor, I tell people to go do stuff, or I ask them. <laughs> they, they say I tell them, but I really ask them. It's just the way they hear it. It's not ever the way I say it. Amen? No, I said amen. <laughs> I can't get nobody. <laughs> Can I buy an amen? <laughs> I, don't, I really don't have an issue pro, with people protesting as long as you're going to do it anyway. Watch this. What did God not talk to Moses about? His past. He didn't talk to him about the man he killed. He didn't talk to him about leaving Egypt. He didn't talk to him about not going back and rescue his people on his own goodwill. He didn't talk to him about anything else but the burden on his heart. And Moses had an issue with God's burden, if you want to be honest. So did Noah. So did Jonah. Didn't turn out so good for Jonah. It got a little messy for Jonah. <laughs> he protested. <laughs> he paid for it. <laughs> but God had no issue with Moses' protest. In fact, if you read, Moses protests for six chapters. Six chapters, Moses protests. And God never rebukes his protest. That should make you feel comfortable to talk to God how you feel like you need to talk to God. When you stub your toe, you can say, ouch. It's okay to say that hurts. It's okay to say, I don't like this. It's even okay to say, I don't want to do this. As long as you do it. This is the beautiful thing about Moses. Moses protested for six chapters. You know where he ends up at the end of chapter six? In Egypt. In Egypt. He ends up in Egypt. He's in Egypt with Aaron, and he's, he's delivering God's people. He's delivering God's message, and he's protesting the whole way. And God just seems to pay no attention to his protest. Oh, come on now. Kicking and screaming the whole way. <laughs> he protested all the way till he ran into Aaron in the middle of the wilderness. He was kicking and screaming, walking to Egypt, and Aaron met him in the wilderness. 
because God had spoken to Aaron to go meet Moses and they met up in the wilderness. That's pretty cool. Like they had no GPS, no roadmaps, no street signs, no, no they in the wilderness. Y'all, we don't even know what wilderness is. They met each other in the wilderness. God didn't say, meet Aaron by the big tree with the brown cow and the dead sheep. He didn't say that. He said, go to Egypt. Told Aaron, go find Moses in the wilderness. It says something about somebody who's not afraid to protest and obey at the same time. I have no harsh feelings towards somebody who's protesting the whole time they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. My girls protest when they have to do the dishes, but they do them. My son used to. He, I got to take my own garbage out now, but he, he would protest when he'd take the garbage out. But I got to tell I protest about taking the garbage out now, but I still take the garbage out now. I'm protesting all the way down the driveway. Is this helping? It's okay if you don't feel like it. It's okay if you don't want to. Just do it anyway. You see, what's cool is that right away God begins to prove himself to Moses. Now, God understands that him and Moses just met. God's fully aware of that. You see, the cool thing about God is that God knew the end of the story before the beginning. Remember, he designed Moses with a purpose to, to fulfill a burden that he had. So he knows how Moses is wired. He knows what triggers Moses. He knows what encourages Moses. He knows what scares Moses. And he knows what, what, what just Moses loves. God knows Moses, just like he knows every one of us. He knows you to the core. So he knows every single thing about you. That's why God, after just introducing himself to Moses, can send him into mission knowing that I know Moses, I created Moses, I know how to get Moses to do what I need him to do, I know how to encourage him, I know how to strengthen him, I know how to speak against his fears, I know when to send him help, I know all the things that Moses don't know. Moses is scared because of what he don't know, but he's introduced to the God who always knows. So all the way to chapter 6, Moses protests. Some interesting things start happening in chapter 7. All these plagues start to happen. I want you to keep in mind that God said, I've hardened Pharaoh's heart. And God knew when Pharaoh's heart would turn and when it wouldn't turn. Which is very interesting because it makes you pay attention to the plagues and why God would do what he did. Chapter 7, verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, pay close attention to this. That means you need to pay attention. <laughs> Watch what God does in only seven chapters. I will make you seem like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron will be your prophet. 
There's a whole lot of trust that's been built in seven chapters. I'm going to give you a timeline at the end of this thing. It's going to blow your mind. A whole lot of trust is built in seven chapters. In seven chapters, God said to Moses, I'm going to make you seem like me to Pharaoh. That is the fullness of representation of God. Like you're going to be me to Pharaoh. That's a lot of trust, right? That's a lot of trust. Pharaoh is going to look at you like he would be looking at me. Now, by chapter 7, Moses and God have been talking a whole lot. Mostly Moses protesting. <laughs> but he's protesting and God's giving instructions and he's fulfilling the instructions as, God, as he's protesting. So Moses is protesting while obeying, while fulfilling the instructions. God tells him to throw his staff on the ground. It turns into a snake and Moses don't like it. Moses is protesting. He's protesting, but he's doing. He's protesting, but he's obeying. He's protesting, but he's walking with God. He's protesting, but he's not running away. He's protesting, but he's not hiding. Big difference, big difference. Moses is not a quitter. They're getting to know each other really well. By chapter seven, Moses is starting to protest a whole lot less and God is starting to trust him a whole lot more. Think about it. In six chapters, actually less than six chapters, in about three or four chapters, Moses goes from, I can't do this, to God saying, I'm going to make you seem like me to this person. The sanctification process, as we become more like Christ, God starts to trust us more. When godly character, integrity, godliness, holiness gets developed in your life, God goes, I can trust you more. I can, tr I can give you more. I can put more in your hands. I can lay the holy things in your hands because I can trust you now. In fact, you can represent me better. He'll give you influence you never thought you could have when he learns to trust you more and you become more trustworthy. Amen? You're going to seem like God. God's increasing Moses' anointing and power is flowing through Moses like it's never flowed before. God is trusting Moses his trust for Moses is increasing to the point that he's willing to share his glory with Moses. Then the plague start. And the plague is something that God did supernaturally with the natural to bring a disturbance into Pharaoh and the Egyptians to get their attention. But the plagues are interesting, really, really interesting. What's funny is, is there's magicians in, in Egypt who are able to do some things that duplicate the miracles that Moses is doing. 
Moses turned the water into blood, so did the magicians. It's the bulb starting to come on a little bit. Hmm, 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 hmm. So the magicians could do everything that Moses could do. And at every point that Moses does what God tells him to do and something supernatural happens with the natural, the magicians duplicate it. You know, not everything that seems good is God. Do you realize that there's a a demonic world out there that likes to duplicate what God's doing in order to get you to bite, to buy in, to sell yourself to? One plague after another, the magicians are staying tip for tat with, with Moses. And Pharaoh's not budging. Chapter 8. Remember, we're going all the way to 33. You might want to call your people, tell them you're going to be late. Call Hacienda, tell them to keep the beans warm. I'm not going to be that long, maybe. Chapter 8, watch verse 16. You learning something yet? This is fun. Like, I love this kind of stuff. Exodus chapter 8, starting in verse 16. So the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, raise your staff and strike the ground. The dust will turn into swarm of gnats throughout the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded them. When Aaron raised his hand and struck the ground with his staff, gnats infested the, the entire land, covering the Egyptians and their animals. All the dust in the land of Egypt turned into gnats. Pharaoh's magicians tried to do the same thing with their secret arts, but this time they failed. Dun, 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 plot twist. Come on, somebody. This is the finger of God, the magicians exclaimed to Pharaoh. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord one day. And some days it's before that last day. And don't you worry, God knows how to outrun the enemy. He knows how to out-scheme and out-play and out-strategize the enemy. God knows how to win. He always wins. This is the finger of God, the magicians exclaimed to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart remained hard. He wouldn't listen to them just as the Lord had predicted. Now, this is interesting. Probably could turn the air conditioner off. Some of y'all look really cold. I feel like wonderful, but yeah. Some of y'all are like, where's that burning bush at? Can somebody lay hands on that air conditioner? Somebody says repeatedly. (laughs) I don't want your brain to freeze. I want you to get all this. But Pharaoh remained hard. This is the first time the magicians couldn't match what, what Moses was able, Moses and Aaron did. Technically what God did. 
They couldn't duplicate it. They then turn around and say to Pharaoh, which they could have died for this, they said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And and Pharaoh did not change his heart. Here's the interesting part. Just like God predicted. Now you would think, if God knew how long Pharaoh's heart was going to be hard, couldn't he just up this game on the first plague? Like, couldn't he have just done one big good plague and just wipe Pharaoh out and change his heart? I mean, couldn't God just do that? I mean, literally, like, couldn't God just say, Pharaoh, change your heart, and boom, his heart changed. Yes, y'all can go. Here's some gold. Like, couldn't God do that? Well, then why in the world would he do it this way? Why? Why would he do the plagues this way? Why would God allow all of this chaos and this this destruction and this this madness to happen, why would he allow it to happen for so long? Like, why would God allow this to happen? It's the same question you're asking when bad things happen to you. Why would God let this happen? You see, by this point, Pharaoh's hard heart and Moses' obedience has become a big old display for all to see. Get this. Pharaoh's hard heart, Moses' obedience has become a big old display for two nations to watch. The Egyptians were looking at this and going, I don't know what we're up against right now. We've never faced something this powerful. Even our magicians are breaking down. I bet there were some Egyptians that were saying, dear God, Pharaoh, change your heart. Like, just let the people, I mean, come on, when the gnats, you know what gnats will do to you? That's worse than being hangry. Come on, somebody. Like the gnats, you're trying to catch a fish. You're trying to cut the yard, and the gnats is all up in your face. Come on, you'll slap, you'll slap, you'll abuse yourself. Right? It's true. Come on. It's true. The Egyptians are going, oh, my God, what is this? What is this force? What is this power? What is this thing that's displaying itself in front of us? I've never seen anything like this before. The nation of Israel is going, oh my God, somebody's taking up for us. Oh, they're on our side. They got gnats, we don't. Oh my goodness. Who is this? Is this the God who promised to deliver us? They're seeing this display and they're going, oh wow, what is this? I've never seen this before. Do you see what's going on? Do you know when you have hard times, there's a, there's a nation of people watching you? It's a small nation, but there's a nation of people watching you. When you're going through struggles, there's people watching. When the thing don't change as fast as you want it to change, there's people watching. So stop complaining and let God display his power through you. So why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? 
Could it be that he was trying to show his own people how much he loves them by delivering them? Maybe he wanted them to see and understand what he's capable of. Uh Uh-huh. You see, sometimes you can't ever find out what God's capable of until you go through something and then he has to deliver you from it. (laughs) Like you'll never know that God's the God of finances until he delivers you financially. You'll never know that God is the God of your emotions until he kicks depression out of your house. You never know that God's the God who can restore anything until you trust him to restore a marriage, a friendship, a child, or something, and he does it. Then you go, oh my God, God is a restorer. God is a deliverer. God is a financial God. He's a God who can deliver me, can set me free, can provide for me. He is God. You never get that understanding just from reading the book. You read the book because the book points to Jesus. The book wants you to get into a relationship with Jesus. When you get into a relationship with Jesus, God starts to sanctify. In the sanctification process, track with me. In the sanctification process, you get to experience the knowledge you gained in your brain with your heart. It's called experiential knowledge of God. The worst thing you can do is quit. Hear me. The worst thing you can do is quit. I would rather you protest than quit. God will still come back and get you. Not like get you. (laughs) Do, do, do. He'll still come back and call your name again, but listen to me. Don't quit. Just stay with him. Stay obeying. You might want to write this down. When God takes his time, he takes his time on purpose. Sometimes you can't see what God's doing because your mouth is too loud. Come on, you know how it is when, you, when you're trying to find a place and you're driving in the car and you tell, turn the radio down, I can't see where I'm going. <laughs> Come on, y'all know it's true. You get into some traffic, you're turning the radio down. Why? Because I can't, I can't see. It's too loud. I can't see. Some of you can't see what God's doing because your mouth won't stop. (laughs) So when God takes his time, he takes it on purpose. So stop being mad about God's timing and start to appreciate the purpose of his timing. Because you never know what he just spared you from, saved you from, and did for you that you can't even see right now. You don't know what he's setting up for you. You may step in front of God and settle for something way less than what God was preparing for you. And he's going, duh. It's 
raining really hard. Can I get another 10, 15 minutes? Like, y'all don't want to go to your car right now, huh? Just play it. I still got plenty of time. Exodus chapter 9. Remember, we're going all the way to 33. We're going to get there. Look at your neighbor and say, we're going to get there. We'll be hungry, but we'll get there. Exodus chapter 9. God, this is so good. This is the plague of the animals. This actually has to do with my, my personal word from the Lord this year. Exodus chapter 9. Verse 4. It says, but the Lord will again make a distinction between the livestock of the Israelites and that of the Egyptians. Not a single one of Israel's animals will die. Did you get what that just said? What was God doing? He was making a distinction between what was his and what was not. Mm. The plagues were coming after the Egyptians like crazy, but the Israelites were standing by watching. God's making a distinction between what's his and what's not. Do you know what he's doing in your life? He's making a distinction between what's his and what's not. I, I don't know if you realize this, like God's not embarrassed by you. You may be embarrassed by him, but he's not embarrassed by you. In fact, he wants the world to know that you belong to him. Because if the world knows that you belong to him, then the world starts to see him in you like they wouldn't have seen him in you when you were still undercover. So the Lord is always making a distinction between what is his and what is not. By this point, Moses has quit arguing with God. <laughs> it took a little while. <laughs> and it's going to take a little while for you too. That's okay. And I want you to know in nine chapters, God never rebuked Moses for protesting. Moses just kept obeying every single command that God gave. Moses wasn't worried about the end. He just took the next step that God said to take. Don't get too far down the road. Just take the next step God wants you to take. I want you to remember how Moses started out with, with God at the burning bush. He protested and protested and protested. Moses teaches me that it's okay to be real with God. Just as long as I obey. In the movie, Chos in the, the show Chosen, Jesus, the character that's playing Jesus, makes a statement. Now, this isn't scripture. It's not written in your Bible. It's just a really cool statement that Jesus made, the character Jesus made. He's sitting with his disciples, and he's sending them out two by two, and they are freaked out, just like Moses was freaked out. All this anxiety came rushing up inside of them, and one of them goes, uh, I think he says something like, I don't, I don't even know what to feel right now. <laughs> and the character that's playing Jesus says, I don't need you to feel anything to do great things. That's a big statement. I don't need you to feel anything to do great things. Just go do the great things and I'll be with you. Feel that. Oh. 
That's another message another day. Look at your neighbor and say, chapter 33. We're there. Verse 15. Then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. That's a far cry from chapter 3. In chapter 3, God said, go deliver my people. Moses gave him every excuse in the book. In chapter 33, God's saying, y'all going to go without me. Moses is protesting again. But this time he's protesting because he don't want to leave God's presence. Something happened in 30 chapters that changed Moses' life that instead when he started, he didn't want to go with God, but now he don't want God to go without him. He's having separation anxieties all over again, but it's not because he doesn't know God. It's because he knows God and he don't want to be away from God. Something's going to change inside of you if you will stay in the process, if you'll let him to continue to sanctify you. Something will change in you, and one day you will say, I don't ever want to be out of the presence of God. I don't want to leave the presence of God. I don't want to smoke that no more because I don't want to be outside of the presence of God. I don't want to say that no more I don't want to hurt God's heart. I want to stay in the presence of God. I got anxieties about being away from his presence. That's a wonderful place to be. Where you go, I will zip my lip. I'll mind my manners. And I'll do whatever you tell me to do. As long as you go with me. But if you ain't going, don't make me go. I don't want to go. Watch this. Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on your people, if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on the earth. So I think it's safe to say that Moses has grown a whole lot in 33 chapters. Do you agree? 33 chapters, Moses grew a lot. Only 30 chapters ago, he gets introduced to God and has an encounter with God. And now 30 chapters later, he's begging God not to leave him and not to separate from him. He's having separation anxiety all over again, but it's a good kind. I actually call it sanctification anxiety. He fell in love with the process of what God was doing, not only in him, but through him. And he realized that in this process of God working in me and through me, though there was tears, though there was heartache, though there was disappointments, though I got fashayed, though all these other things happened, this process is so beautiful because God is in the process. He's not out there somewhere sitting in a place and not being with me. When I'm in the process, I'm in 
in the presence. Come on, somebody. When I'm in his process, I'm in his presence. And, and though I went into this process thinking one thing, something happened to me in the process, and now I fell in love with his presence. Because even the process will help you to recognize the presence even better. Moses has grown a lot in 33 chapters. So let me give you a short timeline of Moses' life. Because you're going you're gonna to be really fascinated. Or at least you should be. At age 40... Moses leaves Egypt and, and finds a home in Midian. He leaves Egypt and finds a home in Midian. At 40. At age 80, he finds the burning bush. For you mathematicians, that's 40 years later. 40 years later, he runs into the burning bush and has the encounter with God, gets introduced to God. At age 80, he meets Aaron in the wilderness and they travel back to Egypt. At age 80, the plagues start as Moses starts to lead the people out of Israel, I mean out of Egypt and towards the promised land. At age 80, Pharaoh lets the people go. Moses got there when he was 80. The people got let go while he was 80. They're in the wilderness traveling towards the promised land while Moses is 80. When Moses turns 81, we find him in chapter 33. Begging God not to send them without him. What are you telling me, Pastor? That God did a whole lot in Moses' life in one year. The devil's been lying to some of you, telling you that it's going to take forever, telling you that it'll never happen, discouraging you because it ain't happening as fast as you want it to happen. He's been lying to you, trying to convince you to not believe that God can do a mountainous thing in your life in one year. That God can mature you, grow you, increase your faith, and dynamically change your life in one year. The devil's a liar. Because we serve the same God who introduced himself to Moses as, at 80, and then in 81, Moses is going, I ain't going nowhere without God. Who convinced you to be stuck? Who's convincing you that God's not moving in your life? Who's convincing you that you don't have what it takes? 
Who's convincing you that God doesn't love you? That God doesn't care about you? That God's not willing and anxious and, and desires to move in your heart? Who's convincing you of that? You need to figure out who's convincing you to be stuck. Because if you're not more like Jesus than you were a year ago, my friend, you're stuck. Let's just be real about the whole thing. Like, can we just throw the elephant in the middle of the room? Like, if you're not more like Jesus than you were a month ago, you're stuck. But I'll give you a year. Like, if you haven't developed and become more like Jesus in a year, you're stuck. You'll never get unstuck if you don't ever get real about where you are. And my prayer for this message and my prayer for every one of us today is that we walk out of here and we go, where am I today? Am I more like Jesus than I was a year ago? Am I more like Jesus than I was a month ago? Am I more like Jesus than I was a minute ago? Or have I gotten stuck? Or am I sliding down a hill somewheres? Am I backtracking in the kingdom of God? I backtracked in the kingdom of God for a season for about five years, I backtracked. I backslid. That's what the church, church folk call it. I backslid for about five years. It was even between my high school and college years. And later on, a prophet prophesied over me, and he said, in fact, there was a season in your life where you were on the back burner of the kingdom. And when he said that, I went, I wasn't just stuck. I was on the back burner. Like I wasn't hot for God. I'm going to give you five things real quick. <laughs> Y'all thought I was done. <laughs> By the way, Moses gets to age 120, and he finally gets the nation to the promised land. God brings him up on a mountain and lets him seize it, but he won't let him go into it. I bet you Moses is still satisfied with the way his life went. Because Moses wasn't looking for the promised land. He was just looking for the presence. Get you some of that. Oh. Some of you are waiting for a promised land experience when all you really need is the presence in your life right now. So how do we deal with sanctification anxiety? Let me give you five ways to deal with sanctification anxiety. You ready? I'm going to go quick. Number one, sanctification is the work of God. Look at your neighbor and say, it's God's work. So it should take a little bit of pressure off of you. I cannot sanctify myself. In fact, any effort I put towards sanctification is useless unless the Holy Spirit is the one driving it. Did you heard me? Any effort I put towards sanctifying myself is useless unless the Holy Ghost is the one driving it. it the, the responsibility of sanctification belongs to God. He's the one who makes us like Christ. So I don't have to use religious words to be like Christ. It's God's work in us that brings about the, se the separation. 
You should feel relieved by that. But don't get too relieved because number two is coming. Sanctification, number two, involves our cooperation. We are responsible to cooperate. Simply put, we are responsible to go along with the Holy Spirit as he leads us. So watch this. All you need to do is what the Holy Spirit leads you to do. Nothing more, nothing less. Don't add to it. Don't complicate it. Just do what the Holy Spirit leads you to do. In the New Testament, Paul tells us many times to be led, be led, be led, not by your flesh, be led by the Spirit. And he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, not the juju spirit. Number three, sanctification is an ongoing process. Look at your neighbor, say, it will take a little time. It's not going to happen by tomorrow. But it is an ongoing process. I'm telling you that because I want you to prepare yourself for a journey, not a quick trip to town. Prepare yourself for a journey. And just know this, the minute you think you've arrived, you're prideful. You need to get on your knees and repent. Because <laughs> the only day we arrive is the day we arrive in heaven. Come on, somebody, can I get a witness? Sanctification is an ongoing process. There will be times that you don't see it. Listen to me. There will be times that you don't see God moving in your life. There will be times that even if you evaluate yourself, you won't feel like or even sense that, that God's done a whole lot in your life. That's why you need biblical community. You need other people in your life because others in your life can tell what you can't tell. Sometimes they can see what you can't see. You can diet for six months and maybe lose two pounds on the scale, but you might have lost six inches. Ain't nobody measured that, but your friends are going, girl, your jeans is baggy on you. You need some friends that can sit. It's hard to be like Jesus all by yourself. <laughs> Number four, the goal and the measurement of sanctification is Christ's likeness. Touched on that at the beginning of the message. My measuring stick is not somebody else. My measuring stick is Christ. So what if I know more scripture than Steve does? Woohoo. Am I becoming more like Christ? That's the real measurement. Because God didn't call me to be the next white version of T.D. Jakes. He called me to be like Jesus. Amen? So my goal is to be like Jesus, not to just be better than somebody else. I'm not going to stoop to that. That's immaturity. Immaturity looks at others and compares himself to others. Maturity says, I'm glad you're in your journey. I'm in mine too. I'm going for Christ. Like the finish line of this race that we're running is not a race to beat somebody. It's a race to become like somebody. Amen? And if I can help some other somebodies along the way, then praise God. Number five, the primary instrument of sanctification is the word of God. Remember, 
the magicians did what Moses did. Look at your neighbor and say, the devil's slick, but he ain't God. Why do you need the word of God? Because you need to know the truth, number one. You need to know the God of the word, number two. And the word of God needs to get inside of you and transform you. It's the primary instrument that the Holy Ghost uses to, to sanctify you. You cannot be sanctified if you don't read your Bible. A lot of problems can be fixed if you'll read your Bible. Counselors might go broke if you read your Bible. The pharmaceutical companies might go broke if you read your Bible. What's wrong with the church today? They quit reading the Bible. They took prayer out of school, but they didn't take it out of you. They took the Bible out of the government, but they can't take it out of you. God's given his word to us. This is more important than coffee. I know that's a big mountain to climb with some of you folks, but I'm going to climb it. <laughs> some of you are like, yeah, Pastor, you got to come up. You got to be way more creative than that than convince me. that, that Anyway. God's primary instrument for sanctification is the Bible. Watch this. If the goal is to become like Jesus, where do you find out what Jesus is like? You ain't going to find it on social media, boo-boo. And those two, three, four hours you spending on social media, it's way more profitable to spend that in the Word. You'll become like Jesus in a minute if you'll turn your phone off and open the Bible. You're not going to find it on TV. It's not being taught in school. You don't go to college and, and sign up for Jesus 101 and 201 and 301. You don't, it's not there. Where do you find it? In a book. What does the book do? It brings you to Jesus. It teaches you who Jesus is. So what's the best way to be like Jesus? Read your Bible. I'm dead serious. If we would read our Bible in the same amount of time every day that it takes us to drink a cup of coffee, our lives would be transformed in less than six months. Some of you might get off of pharmaceuticals in less than six months if you'll read your Bible as much as you drink coffee and complain. I'll give you one better than that. If you'll spend as much time in the Word as you spend in social media, it might get done in a month. A month. That's a quick month. One of those 29-day months. It's a month. <laughs> Y'all better quit. Y'all starting something. Start clowning. Might be a minute. So I find that there's this type of anxiety that believers struggle with once they're born again. It's found in the space between the old life and the new life. Sometimes it's an internal anxiety because of shortcomings or our identity or maybe something that was said or spoken in the past. 
So, so for some of us, it's an internal anxiety. Like not everybody sees it. It's, it's not always displayed, but there's just this quiet disobedience to God because I'm dealing with this internal anxiety. Typically because I believe the wrong things about myself and about God. But then there's this external anxiety. And it's an anxiety that's based in what others think, how others will respond, and the external parts of my life. It could be an anxiety that I don't want to be seen this way. I don't want people to think about me like that. What's crazy is, is when you're born again, things are great, right? Faith for a front row parking lot at Walmart. But eventually that fades for some reason, right? Now you're parking in the back. Anyway, there's something that happens between that moment and, and in the sanctification process with this new life that you've been given, and there's something there. you got to identify it. You don't have to identify it on your own. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the counselor, and he don't charge. You don't even need insurance. Ask him. What's my anxieties? When you notice yourself being anxious, why am I being anxious? Take responsibility for what you're feeling. It doesn't have to take six months and 12 sessions. It can take 12 minutes. God, why am I feeling this way? God, I feel anxious right now. Why do I feel this way? Help me to understand. Then shut your mouth and listen. Right? I've had personally both anxieties. I've had external anxieties and I've had internal anxieties. Sometimes I still battle with insecurities. Most of the time I come under an insecurity attack on Monday. I preach my guts out on Sunday preach under the anointing of God. This is the anointing. This ain't me. My wife will, my, my wife will confirm that. I, I, well, we'll have this moment today, but tomorrow morning, I can almost bank on it. The enemy's going to come at me with some kind of insecurity. Sometimes it's because of what people don't say. Sometimes it's because of what people say. Sometimes compliments turn into insecurities. I'm just being real with you. I have some, some anxieties in my own life that I'm wrestling through. So, and most of the time, it looks like an anxiety. I also have this anxiety of making a mistake. Like, I don't want to mess up the kingdom. Like, the last thing I want to do is hurt any of you or lead you astray. This is a great responsibility to be a shepherd, to be a pastor, because every word that leaves my mouth, I will not be held accountable for. That scares me. And so this, this fear of making a mistake will constantly try to come up on me. But I'm saying this because I want you to understand something. I've not settled with living that way. I'm not as insecure as I used to be. I'm not as fearful as I used to be. I'm learning better how to punch the devil back in the nose. I'm learning better where my security comes from and where it doesn't come from.
the current word for the church for this year has got me nervous. It's got me anxious. I'm getting ready to step into some environments that I'm not comfortable in. As the leader of this church, I'm getting ready to go into communities that I'm not comfortable being in. Having conversations I don't really want to have. But I know this much and I've learned this much that if I'll do like Moses and just obey, even though I don't feel like it, I will experience God in the process. Nike was right. Just do it. That's the only thing they were right about, but just do it. Come on, Steve. So what's making you anxious in your obedience to Jesus? Write that question down. What's making you anxious in your obedience to Jesus? What's making you anxious in your obedience to Jesus? You really need to answer that question. You know what Moses did with his anxieties? What did he do? You just learned it. What did he do with his anxieties? He went to the Father. Don't be like Mike, be like Moses. Go to the Father with your anxieties. Don't sit with them. And by all means, don't adopt them. They are not your anxieties. Don't claim them. Don't give them a social security number. Don't give them a key to your house. These are insecure. These are, these are anxieties that are messing with. They're not mine. Come on, that's, that's simple freedom right there. Moses went to God and God proved himself faithful to Moses and all who were, who were involved. And here's, the, here's the last question I want to leave you with. You ready? You ready to write this down? Will you obey God even though you're uncomfortable? Write it down. I don't see enough of you writing. I know you. You don't have the photogenic, photographic memory like you think you have. Write that sucker down because the devil's going to try to take it from you. Will you obey God even though you're uncomfortable? I want us to take a moment and get real with Jesus and get real with ourselves. So I'm giving you permission to not think about somebody else. Have you experienced God's presence in such a way that you don't ever want to leave it? Let me tell you why I'm I'm asking that question. Because there was, there was many years in my life where I enjoyed God's presence, but I didn't always know how to stay in it. And for some people, I'm just going to be real honest, some of you have never experienced God in this kind of a way. You've never experienced your presence. And I, don't, I can't unpack why. 
So I really feel like God wants me right now to just create a moment for presence. So Lord, would, would you help us to experience you right now? For, for some people here, it's going to be like they haven't done in a long time. For others, it'll be like it's the first time. God, you know who those folks are. God, I really feel like Moses right now where, like, if you're not going to, if you're not going to be with us, then, like, I don't, I don't, I'm not going. I think what I'm trying to say, Lord, is I'm desperate for your presence. I'm desperate. I'm hungry. I'm longing for your presence. I believe that for some of us in this room this morning. So Lord, would you show yourself to us right now? Would you begin to tell us Holy Spirit and show us what's making us anxious? in the wrong way. Lord, would you show us and even put a name to that fear that some of us are standing behind? Lord, would you put your finger on that thing that makes us want to quit? And would you remove it? That thing, Lord, that when the pressure of life comes and I want to recluse, I want to hide, I want to isolate, I want to do everything that's not good for me. Would you put your finger on that, Lord? And would you remove it? In fact, if you show it to me, I'll name it and I'll, I'll ask you to move it. Touch the thing in me that wants to quit. That wants to hide wants to barricade, isolate. I'll go even further. Lord, would you touch the thing in me that wants to end it all? Self-destruct. It can be the kind of self-destruction that doesn't come with suicide. It can be the self-destruction that just means I'm just going to wreck my life run it into the banks, and then just let it be a wreck. Would you put your finger on that thing and the thing that may be wanting me to take my own life? Would you put your finger on that, and would you pull it out? God, would you put your finger on the thing in me that wants to act like I hadn't heard you? 
kind of facetious. That thing that makes me not want to pay attention to you because I don't want to be responsible for something I hear. Now, would you put your finger on that? Here's the, here's the last one. Lord, would you put your finger on the thing that's given me sanctification anxiety? Whatever it is that's, that's, that's causing me to not leave the old life behind, to fully become like Jesus, would you put your finger on my sanctification anxiety, the thing that's keeping me from following the Holy Spirit? the thing that's keeping me from reading my Bible and obeying you. Would you put your finger on that, Lord? That thing that makes me look like a rebel, the thing that makes me seem rebellious even in my spiritual life. Would you put your finger on that, Lord? That sanctification anxiety, would you put your finger on it? And would you remove it in the name of Jesus? Spirit, would you begin to whisper in our ear? Would you begin to help us with our identity? Would you ID us? Would you correct my identity? Would you reset my heart? Would you clear out my emotions, Lord? cover them in truth. Would you cleanse my thoughts in my mind and give me the mind of Christ? Lord, would you help me to put my emotions in such a place that they follow my decisions and my decisions don't follow my emotions. So Lord, I thank you for this moment. It tickles me, Lord, that you're speaking to people right now. I'm excited, Lord, because somebody's hearing you for the first time. I'm excited because somebody's hearing you again after a long time. I'm excited because chains that have held us back are falling to the ground. Lies that were spoken are being broken by truth. Anxieties are leaving. Fear is leaving. Doubt is leaving. Depression is leaving. Suicide is leaving. Wreckage is leaving. It's leaving. Let me give you something brief but prophetic. The Lord would say to every one of you right now, that this very moment we just had over the last three or four minutes 
is available to you any minute of every day. It's available to you. The Lord would say to you, I'm always ready to sit down and talk. I'm always ready to listen. I'm always ready to speak. If you will, I will, says the Lord. So you can have this at any moment, in any place, says the Lord. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your words. Transform us into your image, Jesus. I pray we become like Jesus in such a way it makes all kinds of people uncomfortable, including us. So God, we bless you today. Thank you for Moses. He's really cool. He's really cool. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name.